Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for September 8th, 2021. And I'm going to be talking about a few of the books I got a chance to read already, as well as a rundown on some other books you may want to be on the lookout for today. Just a reminder, if you're interested in any of the DC books, we do our DC Spotlight. It comes out every Tuesday and it is full of spoilers. We break it down completely. Rocky from Comic Boom and I go into detail about story and predictions and all that kind of good stuff, as opposed to this new comic book day episode every week, which is spoiler free. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to read any of those DC books and you don't want them to be spoiled, you probably want to wait until you've had a chance to check them out, as opposed to New Comics Wednesday, you can listen to and not worry about being spoiled. So with that being said, let's go ahead and dive into uh, the books for today that I'm going to talk about, starting with The Amazing Spider-Man number 73. This is from writer Nick Spencer. We have art from Z. Carlos and Carlos Gomez with Marcelo Ferreira. Uh, Alex Sinclair handles the colors and Joe Caramagna's on the letters. Uh, it's a quick read. Um, and, you know, this these Nick Spencer Amazing Spider-Man run has been... I've talked about the, the challenges I've had with it. Spencer doesn't always seem to be able to nail the landing. Sometimes his storylines seem to drag on and on and on as the Kindred storyline has. And I've talked a lot about him leaving the book and trying to wrap up all his storylines. So this one is, I won't say it's, it's not paced quickly because it does move along pretty fast, but it's sort of like nothing happens. Um, Peter, you know, was left in the graveyard at the le- end of last issue. He's looking for Mary Jane and he's not even reunited with her here. It, it's almost like this whole issue is a bunch of setup. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it's the fact that I've taken a few breaks from amazing Spider-Man over the years and some of the, backstory that's being referred to in this issue with Norman Osborn. I'm not hundred percent clear on, I think somebody who's a huge, amazing Spider-Man fan and, and is, you know, familiar with the entire history of the spider clones and Norman Osborn and his death and resurrection and all that kind of stuff. They're going to get a lot more out of this. And I do wonder if this is a situation where I'm sort of having to put my foot in my mouth and say, um, well, maybe Spencer did need more time, you know, as, as much as I've been complaining, God, get this kindred story over with. This isn't exactly a new reader friendly story, and it hasn't necessarily been the entire time. But even if you started with Spencer's run with with, you know, the uh, issue number one of the series, I think back in 2016 or 15 when it when it kicked off. And we're reading it all this time. You think, okay, well, I've, I've been reading and I know everything about Kindred and, and you know, the Kingpin and uh, Sin Eater and all that. You've been reading all the events recently that have, have come out and you should feel like I have a good sort of handle on what's going on. But then you read this issue and you see all this backstory and, and stuff that, that's happened with Norman Osborn and, and Harry Osborn over the years. And all of a sudden you're, you feel like, and I've, I've read a lot of Spider-Man, a lot of Spider-Man. Um, and even I felt uh, at times a little bit lost. So uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, the good thing is that, you know, in this day and age, if you're curious, you probably can go and find a YouTube video on the uh, 
a complete history of, of Norman Osborn and Harry Osborn and get caught up and see the events that are being referred to here. Um, and, and some of these events I do remember, you know, as we're going through this sort of recap of, of the Osborn history. Um, but I definitely feel like if you have a good handle on who the Osborns have been throughout their Marvel history, you're going to have a better idea of, uh, or, or you're going to get more out of this issue. Uh, and then we do get a final page that does hint at something that was dropped from uh, by Spencer a few issues ago and then seemed to completely disappear from the radar. So that may have a lot to do, in, in my mind, with the new Spider event that's coming up directly after uh, Spencer leaves and then hopefully leading into going back to twice a month or, or my preference would be a once a month title with one writer as opposed to like six artists they've announced and three writers to try to do this three times a month uh, story. So, uh, you know, I've talked about that a lot as well. I, I just, it's too much for amazing Spider-Man and it's, it's like, there's not a lot of Spider-Man titles that are sort of ongoing and, and sort of like normal, you know, tied into the continuity of, of the Marvel universe uh, strongly right now, you know, um, think back to, okay, there was Amazing Spider-Man and then they started Spectacular Spider-Man and it was just those two for the longest time. And then in the 80s, they also started a Web of Spider-Man. And so then there was, you had three ongoing Spider-Man titles every month, different creative teams. And sometimes the storylines would cross over, but most of the time they didn't. They just did their own thing. And then when McFarlane left Amazing Spider-Man, he had his just plain Spider-Man title. So at that point, there were four. So you were almost getting one Spider-Man book every week. But again, different creative teams, different storylines. You didn't necessarily have to buy them all. Although sometimes they did cross over, as I said. Um, and they don't necessarily have that right now, right? Like they, they had the Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man by Tom Taylor that was, you know, sort of a, its own thing for a little while. But you know, we have these other spider titles, but they, they pop up and they, they're usually limited series, even though Marvel no longer, you know, puts it on the cover or even announces that it's a, a limited, which is annoying. Um, but is that the gap they're trying to fill, right? Like they used to be multiple Spider-Man titles. Then, then give us multiple. If you want to put out three Spider-Man books a month, don't have them all be amazing. And maybe some people prefer that, but, but my problem with it is that, you know, now it's a team of writers instead of one writer's vision. And that can be okay. That can work to some extent if they're, you know, have a good collaborative process. So that's not necessarily the problem, but where I have a problem with it is the art. Um, you know, like I, I like to have, and I know I'm old school, but I like to have the same artist giving me the book month in, month out. And I know it's the exception rather than the rule now. You certainly don't have guys like John Byrne who were doing two books a month back in the day. Or Jack Kirby, you know, doing three or four or whatever it was, some insane amount. But I mean, even the, you know, the fastest artists now are usually only like eight to 10 issues uh, for the year, but at least there's some consistency there where you're getting, you know, the same artists and, you know, somebody like a Mark Bagley, where they get to do a long run on a series and they become uh, identified with that character. I, I like that. And when you're doing, you, three issues of amazing spider-man a month you can't have that and and that just bugs me a little bit like so if you wanted to have three spider books three amazing spider-man books out a month like instead of doing three amazing spider-man just give go back to doing three regular spider-man series if that's what you want to do 
and with three different storylines and people can pick up the ones they want. You can cross them over once in a while if you want, you know, like Clone Saga did or or whatnot, but, you know, you don't always have to. So I guess we'll see when Spencer leaves. Um, I, and I will say, you know, as a positive, as Spencer's winding this up, even though the, the pacing still, he still doesn't seem to be able to get that right. Um, it does feel like it's reach, reaching a, a conclusion, even if it doesn't necessarily feel like, uh, hey, this is going to be a super satisfying conclusion. Or maybe it's just, like I said, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Osborne history um, throughout, you know, every Spider-Man book because I, I took such a long break from reading Amazing Spider-Man. So uh, we'll see. The other thing I will mention, this is like a 30 page book, 29 page book. Um, and Marvel does have a little icon or logo on the cover that talks about 20 years and never forget. So that's in reference to um, the, September 11th tragedy in New York with the airplane smashing into the uh, world trade center. There is a seven page, I think it's seven page backup um, with Spider-Man and Captain America called the four fives uh, written by Joe Casada, art by John Romita jr. And it, it's basically their Marvel's tribute to, uh, to that tragic event and, and remembering the, the people that lost their lives that day. So I imagine that shows up in, in all the Marvel titles as we get showed up in every one that I read. So, uh, all right. Speaking of Marvel, next book is Daredevil, number 34 from writer Chip Zdarsky. Art is by Stefano Landini, colors by Marcio Menez. This is Lockdown Part 4. We saw at the end of the last issue that the uh, detective Cole North went into the prison where Daredevil had sort of taken over. He learned that the a prison warden there was uh, basically testing these dangerous drugs on prisoners called Resid. And uh, we learn in this issue exactly what Resid is and what it does. And we see how it's affecting Daredevil. Meanwhile, out in the city, uh, we saw last issue that Elektra had been rescued from the bullseye clones by uh, Tony Stark and the Avengers. And, and Tony was given her some, uh, nanites to help her heal. And so we see the after effects of that. And uh, we know that there's a big event coming up in Daredevil called Devil's Reign. And I think Daredevil's actually ending, like technically you're going on hiatus while there's this Devil's Reign series written with the same creative team. Um, so I'm not sure why they don't just put it in the regular Daredevil title, but then Daredevil's going to start back up with the same creative team, I think, um, or maybe there's just things that they aren't telling us. So I've talked for a long time about the emotionality of the story and how it feels like Zdarsky has been building up to something really big. And it certainly seems like that's the case. And now we know that big thing is called Devil's Reign. So uh, I will say that since about four or five issues ago, it's not necessarily that the emotion is taken a back seat so much as the action and pacing of the story has sped up with these big events going down, you know, daredevil um, taking over the prison and, and bullseye clones and Electra trying to, to take down bullseye and, and save the city. And so in that way, there hasn't been as much room for, the story to breathe and to, and to have those character moments. And that's completely okay. I'm not finding that it's affecting my enjoyment of the story at all. Rather what I'm finding is the, the slower issues that were 
I don't want to say they were set up because they were they they felt like they were paced well and you felt like you're getting a big chunk of the story and it wasn't so obvious that it was a setup issue. But then you had that subtext, that feeling behind the scenes that something big was coming, like I mentioned. And I think it goes to show just how masterful of a storyteller Chip Zdarsky is that technically those in a way were setup issues, uh, but you didn't, he, you didn't notice it. it. It was such a satisfying chunk of the story on its own. They didn't even realize it until now here we are getting the payoff of all that emotion and all that setup and, and, and Zdarsky moving the pieces around on the board to get them in place to have this situation. And what I'm really curious about, you know, I'm talking about how action packed and fast paced these late latest issues have been, when we get to that devil's reign story, are we going to look back on this and see that even though I'm talking about it building up to something big and it's, it's obviously, um, you know, much more obvious now, and we even know what it's building to. It's building the Devil's Reign, but compared to Devil's Reign, will this even feel a little bit like set up uh, with where Daredevil is, where Elektra is, what the Kingpin's up to, all that kind of thing? And it feels much more like sort of classic long-form Marvel storytelling, where it's not writing for the trade. More so, this title feels more so like that than anything I've read in a long, long time. So. Again, Zdarsky just showing that I'm an idiot forever thinking he wasn't a spectacular writer. You know, I didn't like his Howard the Duck run, but, you know, I'm able to look back on that now and realize that, you know, I should have just been able to recognize it wasn't for me. Um, and Spider-Man life story, for, you know, for different reasons. Maybe it just wasn't my cup of tea, but, you know, Daredevil, Stillwater, Justice League Last Ride, you know, everything I'm reading from the guy these days is he's knocking it out of the park. So, uh, my apologies, Chip. Uh, I shouldn't have bad-mouthed your Howard the Duck. I, I should have been able to recognize that it just wasn't for me. So uh, anyway, if, if you're not reading Daredevil, you're missing out on like one of the best Marvel titles that's coming out month in and month out. You know, it's a, it's a real short list. If you want to read the best Marvel stuff, Daredevil, Spider-Woman, Captain Marvel. Uh, what am I forgetting? Um, Black Widow. There you go. Uh, Mortal Hulk is ending, so and that's been sort of inconsistent for me for the last couple of years. Uh, but yeah, you stick with those four. I don't think you can go wrong. So, all right, on to the next book I'm going to talk about today. Uh, it's another Marvel book. It's Defenders. This is issue number two. Uh, storytellers are listed as Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez. Obviously, Al Ewing is the writer. Javier Rodriguez is the, the artist, but they're listed as storytellers. Maybe Javier has more input than usual with an artist. He's not working just straight from a script. There may be more collaboration there. I do like that um, because, you know, even though it's visual, what the artist does is storytelling. So uh, I would be fine if they started crediting all artists that way. Uh, but anyway, I, I just noticed it. So I thought I'd mention it. Letters are by Joe Caramagna. And uh, obviously that means that Javier Rodriguez is doing the colors as well. What's interesting, so uh, the first issue of, of Defenders was, was Doctor Strange going around and, and recruiting a new team of Defenders. Uh, and I didn't mention who was on the team at that time because obviously we didn't want it to be uh, a spoiler. But I can say now that in the first issue, he recruits the Master Writer, or, or you, you could possibly interpret it as the Master Writer recruits him. And then he goes and recruits everybody else, the other, everybody else being um, the harpy, the red harpy, Betty, um, 
Ross Banner version of, uh, of uh, Betty Ross. Cloud, who's a, a non-binary alien who at various times has taken a female form or uh, a male form, but oftentimes just appears as a, cl- a cloud. Uh, and then Silver Surfer. So you have a couple of sort of original defenders there in, in Doctor Strange and, and Silver Surfer. And basically the mass writer had showed up and had said, you know, there's this big giant threat. We need to put a team together. These are the people that Dr. Strange recruited in basically turning his magic loose and, and um, basically letting it go out of his control in such a way, you know, he created this spell. It's like, I need the you know best people, but in order to do this, I have to like hands off and let my magic go out of control. I don't know when I'll be able to pull it back under control and they end up like time traveling through or multiversal traveling through the the Marvel multiverse, which brings us to this issue where they meet according to the cover here. So it's not a spoiler, the mother of Galactus. And uh, it's pretty cool. You know, we haven't necessarily ever seen these characters, the mother of Galactus and what is threatening her sort of version of of the multiverse. And there's um, an event that happens in the issue between, um, well, I won't even say, I'll, I'll just say it involves Silver Surfer, and uh, it could have a real big ramifications on our, or, you know, the normal, I don't say our, but the, the normal sort of, or the 616, you know, Marvel multiverse portion. Um, it, it could have a real lasting effect. And I find, I find that to be interesting um, because it's, I won't say it's a throwaway, but it's not the main part of this story, uh, but it is something that happens and uh, it ends up being a, a pretty cool scene. Um, and then at the end, we are introduced to uh, another character as the, the team travels further along in the multiverse, I guess you'd say, who could be another um, interesting character, but certainly a strange character. Um and, and as I say that, I realize that's a, a perfect word to describe him because it even says next issue, stranger than strange. And that word strange, well, a couple things. First of all, the Defenders always felt to me like the weird team book, you know, as opposed to like Avengers or Fantastic Four, which felt like more traditionally superhero. The Defenders was always the one where they were fighting like just weird stuff. Um, it always felt sort of out there. Uh, at least in its beginnings, you know, especially when you had Dr. Strange and you had uh, the Hulk and you had uh, Ghost Rider on the team. It was, wait, I'm thinking of the champions. Um, but anyway, Defenders, it was more of the B-list characters, um, even, you know, at the point where you had uh, Valkyrie on the team or Gargoyle. Um, it was just always sort of out there. Uh, and I think one of the best things about this version of the Defenders is that, uh, you're getting that same feeling of this is there's a strangeness to it. This is the the sort of weird Marvel team. Um, so no idea how long this is supposed to last. I almost didn't read the second issue because the first one didn't really grab me. Uh, but I'm glad I did because it did have that cool moment with Silver Surfer, like I said. And the story is it ends up being really interesting. Um the art by Javier Rodriguez, like I flipped through it at first. I'm like, am I going to read this? And I flipped through it and the art is solid, but it's, there's a lot there 
like I almost feel like it needs to be oversized because there's a couple of pages where um, they're almost montage pieces or collages and there's so much action and so, you know, so many sound effects and so much detail that it's, it's almost overwhelming. Like it feels a bit uh, messy. That being said, Javier Rodriguez does a great job of conveying that feeling of strangeness in the, in the issue, uh, which contributes to, I think, exactly what Al Ewing is, is trying to do in terms of the narrative. So, uh, you know, maybe just writes on the script, you know, make it look weird. Well, Javier definitely makes it look weird. So if you're a Defenders fan, I'm from, from uh, back in the day, you'll probably really, really enjoy it. Uh, all right. Up next, my first image title I'm going to talk about is from writer, writer Brandon Thomas. We have art by uh, co-creator Kari Randolph. Colors are by Emilio Lopez. Letters are by Darren Bennett. And design is by uh, Andrew Suarez. Uh, and I will take this opportunity to remind everybody that this last Monday, we released an episode where we chatted with Brandon Thomas, along with uh, artist Daniel Samper, about their... Um, really awesome Future State Aquaman series. And we touched on excellence just real briefly, hoping to have Brandon back on to, to talk specifically about excellence. If you're not familiar with the, the story, it's it's basically our world, but magic users exist, but they sort of live in the shadows or, or they're kind of invisible. And it, they're, in a way, they're sort of a, a slave or a servant class, right? There's this guild that um, has these rules. They're called the four walls. And everybody that has these powers, which they all appear to be people of color that have the ability to wield magic, um, they're basically assigned other people to make sure that they live their lives the correct way and, and make the right choices so they can be successful in their life. Um, so there's a lot of metaphor there, right? Like uh, persons of color being subservient, people uh, of color being servants, people of color being ignored to the point of being invisible. Uh, whereas, you know, white privilege is a thing. These, these, because most of the time, every time I've seen, I believe that the, the people that they're being assigned to, that whose lives are supposed to be become perfected in a way, are are white people. So it's an it's a really great story starting from that premise, and obviously very. Uh, relevant and and topical and it's a story about a, a boy who is you know born into this family uh this legacy of of you know wielding magic and and having this duty who who says no this isn't the way things should be this isn't right this isn't fair and he's going to do uh whatever he can to uh, throw off those those shackles and free him himself his family and everybody else as well and we've we've learned various things about this this sort of guild that controls everything throughout the series, uh, and they're not what they first appear to be. And uh, this boy has a really uh, terrible relationship with his father because he, as much as he loves his father, and he wants his father to be proud of him, he can't reconcile the fact that his father has lived in this system and has allowed this system to uh, to exist throughout. So uh, it it's a critically acclaimed series the first i think uh eight or nine issues did really really well and then they did a kickstarter that collected i think the first eight or nine issues that that also did really really well 
And then with COVID last year, they, they had to take a little bit of a break and they finally came back with an issue 10 earlier in, in 2021. I think it was in February or March, but then, you know, some other stuff happened and, 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 and some of what's happened is Brandon Thomas, this uh, excellent series has sort of put him on the map. You know, he did noble and he did um, horizon and image and, you know, he's done various other things, Voltron and whatnot, but it was really this excellent series that, that is so good. That's been critically acclaimed that kind of put him on the map and he's been doing a ton of DC work lately. So I'm sure that contributed to a, a bit of the slowdown, but uh, Brandon mentioned uh, on our chat that he's hoping they're going to get back on a regular schedule uh, issue 11, obviously out this, uh, this Wednesday today, uh, as I'm releasing this and I highly recommend the series. If you, uh, haven't read any of it, you can with what happens and, and the exposition and whatnot in this issue, pick it up and, and kind of hit the ground running, but I would recommend maybe grabbing the trades, uh, even if you digitally or not, because the story is very, very much worth reading, uh, from the start, um, but the other thing Brandon mentioned is that they're hoping to get back on a regular schedule and, and they're working on, I think like he said, issue 12 right now as, as we were uh, talking. So hopefully issue 12 will be out next month and we can at least get, you know, the, the arcs out in a, in a relatively uh, timely fashion. And if they need to take breaks between arcs for other work or whatnot, then obviously that's, uh, that's their prerogative. But I just hate to see the series disappear or lose momentum because it's a fantastic uh, series. So. Uh, all right. Next book I want to mention also from Image. It's called The Me Love in the Dark. This is issue number two, story by Scotty Young, art by Jorge Corona, colors by Jean-Francois Bellou. Nate Picos of Blambot does the letters. We've got 3D model of the house by David Stoll. Um, and this is basically the story of a haunted house. Uh, the first issue we saw this woman who was an artist, sort of a starving artist in New York and just sort of painted for the pure fun and pleasure of it. And then got quote unquote discovered and her art became like really in demand and she had gallery showings and sold all of it. And uh, it's doing really well, has an agent and all this money and everything, but now the pressure's on to, to have her uh, next sort of phase, right? Make more, well, you need to paint more now. What, what's the next thing you're going to do? What's your next movement or, or whatever, however you want to put it. And she's struggling with that, you know, now that there's all these expectations before she just created art for the sake of creating art. And so uh, she goes looking for a place in the first issue to, to do that art. She sees a bunch of different houses that her real estate agent shows her and then settles on this one that's supposedly haunted. And the agent can't, like, I wasn't even going to show you this one. And this is the one you pick. And uh, in the first issue, at the end, she sort of meets up with the voice of the house, uh, and finds out that it truly is haunted. She's not just crazy. You know, things that have been moving and uh, sounds she's been hearing and whatnot. So that uh, that narrative continues in the second issue as a relationship starts to grow between her and and the house or the or the person who's uh, who's haunting the house. So no idea where the story is going. No idea exactly what uh, Scotty Young and Jorge Corona are trying to explore here. But this is the same creative team that gave us. Uh, Midwest, which was a fascinating and really great uh, series from uh, a couple of years ago that really was about the relationship between father and son. And uh, and that was just a fantastic series. And so even though I'm not the biggest horror fan, I mean, obviously I read way more horror than I ever did growing up um, and, and enjoy a lot of it. The biggest thing for me with jumping on this 
series was the fact that I, I trust these creators after what was amazing uh, about uh, Midwest. So, so far, this one hasn't grabbed me the way that Midwest has. I'm still on for uh, another issue because it has, there is an intriguing aspect. There's a little bit of a, um, a mystery here. And, and you know, there's a, a sort of a compelling quality to the narrative, uh, which I think that goes to the, the pacing and the slow reveals that Scotty Young is giving us, kind of doling them out slowly to sort of build the story. And I think that's really working for me. Uh, the artwork from Jorge Corona, uh, I think he's a fantastic artist. He has a really incredible ability to set mood through uh, body language, through character uh, action and, uh, you know, just the, the body movement of, of the characters. So uh, he did, he, he did that expertly in Midwest. He's doing the same thing here with this artist who, you know, you can see her timidness when she's communicating with the house or, or whatever it is. There's not terror there, but there's um, sort of a, a wariness. And, and you, you get the impression that even if it were just another person and not necessarily a ghost or a spirit or a monster or whatever, you know, it ends up being that she, she would still have that, right? She's a person who's, who's sort of guarded and timid and sort of, you know, keeps to herself in, in that way. And, and again, Corona does an incredible job of conveying that just by the way he has her sit in a chair. Um, I mean, that is, that is fantastic. That, that is really good storytelling. And I'll go further to say that the way he frames the scenes, you know, um, what he's doing with, you know, camera angle and, and background uh, it, it also really, really helps. And the other part of it is his uh, collaboration with Jean-Francois Bellou, who does the colors, uh, because the colors here are, are much different in my mind than, than uh, Middle West. I think I called it Midwest before. It's Middle West is the, the, the image series that, uh, that I really loved from this creative team previously. Um, but that was a much more bright series you know uh it, it had its dark moments but you know sort of set in this almost like wizard of oz like land uh that uh, was much brighter as opposed to this which is you know, horror so obviously you're going to expect it to have uh darker tones but one of the things i always say about uh horror comics is there's a danger when you go dark to, for the art and the book itself to look muddy to look dirty and sometimes you want that sometimes that's what the creative team's actually going for uh to me it doesn't work it's just I, i'm not a fan of that type of art um i know you're trying to evoke mood and and tone and, and emotion but a lot of times it, it's a little bit of a, a turnoff um but even though jean francois goes dark here with his palette and his color choices the art is never muddy and so i really appreciate what's uh what the creative team is doing uh, are, you know, both Scotty Young with the narrative and uh, Bellu and uh, Jorge Corona on the art. Fantastic story. So if, if you're into horror at all, or just creepy stories, you need to pick this up because it is definitely a creepy ass story. Um, and yeah, it's, it's working for me so far, though I'm not completely sucked in. So we'll see what issue three brings. Uh, all right. 
Up next is another, another image comic. It's Ordinary Gods, number three. This is from writers Kyle Higgins and Joe Clark. Art is by Felipe Watanabe. Colors by Frank William. Letters by Clayton Cowles. And uh, this is the first issue that has Joe Clark credited as a co-writer. You know, Kyle Higgins has a lot of irons in the fire right now, both things he's writing, uh, things he's kind of show running from a, um, you know, editorial uh, role uh, for his black market narrative. And then I, I think he's getting ready to, to direct a, another movie. You know, he went to film school and that's sort of his, his first passion. So uh, I'm not surprised that he brought on a, a co-writer because the idea that he had, and we had him on the show to talk about it, uh, this idea of uh, these old gods, these elder gods uh, having a civil war and using the earth as a, a prison uh, is, is inspired. And it's a big idea and it's huge in scope. And now that everything has sort of been set up in the first couple of issues, we get a chance to go back and see that world that the gods came from and start to see some of the politics, not only between the gods that sort of rebelled against the the, the ruler of the gods and, and caused the initial rift, uh, and caused the initial civil war, and then got themselves banished to earth. We also see that even among the gods that stayed back, there are machinations, there are politics at play. And, uh, and I love that because it feels like it really taps into sort of the, the classic myths of, of our own history. When you think about gods and the stories that are told about, you know, how they tend to be arrogant and they don't get along and, you know, there's all this infighting and politics and whatnot. And so it, it feels very authentic uh, in that way. But then the other thing that Ordinary Gods has done throughout all three of its issues, first one being, I think, a double size 40 page, it's full of action too. Like the, the creative team never, never gives us so much exposition or, or never gives us so much setup that they forget to give us action. So there's plenty of action in this issue. I'm real excited to see where it goes. Um, the art is fantastic, especially the colors by Frank William. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm really in, it feels like we've, we've entered the next sort of, I don't, I won't say chapter, but sort of the next part of the story, you know, now that the kind of the setup has, um, has happened and we've we've met Christopher, who's sort of the main um, main character of the story, who's one of these gods that's imprisoned in Earth, sort of reincarnated, and he has sort of uh, you know obviously this this boy he grew up not knowing this, and now he's like 21, 22 years old. He's discovered it. He's finally accepted it. He's accepted the truth of what he is, and now he's uh, you know taking that next step. Okay, now what's what comes next? Now we know. I know who I am. How do we escape from earth? How do we stop this war? How do we, you know, get back to the place that we come from? So we're definitely getting ready to, uh, to see the next big chunk of the story. So it's, it's been a really, really great uh, series so far. Um, and I, again, I'm just really, really impressed. I've always been a huge fan of Kyle Higgins, but between this and uh, radiant black, I feel like he's really, upped his game this year. Uh, so kudos to Kyle for, uh, for giving us some incredible stories. Uh, all right. Last book I'm going to talk about in detail. You know, I always have to talk about an Aftershock book and there, there is one Aftershock release this week. It's a, it's a new number one. It's called Search for Who. 
uh, and that's spelled H-U. Uh, maybe it's who, who, Hugh, not sure. It's Chinese. Maybe I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, but it's issue one, Our Kind of War, from John Tsui and Steve Orlando as the writers. Rubin is the artist. DC Alonzo does the colors and Carlos Manguel on letters. Now, this was Jay's book of the week. Unfortunately, he, he couldn't join me. I'm, I'm recording too late uh, for him. He's a couple hours ahead of me, and I have had a bunch of other stuff going on. I couldn't record sooner, so unfortunately... Uh, letting him sleep. Uh, but he, this was his favorite book. And basically, it's the story of, of this guy who comes back from, uh, I guess, Afghanistan. You know, he was in the, the Army or the Marines. And uh, he comes back home and he's, he's trying to help his parents, who uh, were both from China originally. And um, he finds out that they have ties back home to, to organized crime back in China. And with what happens to his parents, he can't, he can't, he can't, his parents are all he has. His parents are, are who got him through, um, you know, his tour in, in Afghanistan, like knowing that he needed to be there for them. Uh, it's clear that he's got a very close relationship, especially with his mother. And so when they're in danger, he's, he's going to do, whatever he needs to do to help them. And so what happens is Aaron reaches out to one of his old uh, army buddies. I'll assume it's the army that he's in. And they, they head to, uh, to China to try to get to the bottom of this sort of mess that his mother has, uh, has become involved in or ran away from, I guess is a better way to put it. So what's so great about it is that at the right from the start, right from the core, right from the first page, it's all about family. Um, and like a lot of cultures, the Asian culture, there's, there's a lot of legacy there. There's a lot of pride when it comes to who your ancestors are and who your family is. And, you know, there's that idea of one generation taking care of the next. Um, and, uh, and then in turn, when, when that older generation is no longer able to care for themselves. You know, the younger generation is expected to, to care for them in their, their older age. So there's that idea of family at, at the core of a lot of what their values are. And that's what search for Hugh really latches onto, like I said, right from the first page. Um, but the overlay of that is all this sort of, um, Yakuza action, I guess. I mean, Yakuza is Japanese, but you know, this, this Asian gangster uh, action. So it's a great start to the series. Uh, absolutely fantastic. There's also a couple of pages in the back that say the, the, the players and they give us kind of a, a, a breakdown from the point of view of the main character, Aaron, how he sees these other characters. Then we get a family tree for the, this crime family. And so it really helps to sort of set up and, and flesh out what you get in the, in the pages of the story. So I'm not familiar with this, uh, this co-writer. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of Steve Orlando, um, but I'm not familiar. I've never heard of, uh, of John uh, Suyi, I think is how you say it. It's T-S-U-E-I, um, Tsui. Maybe not sure, um, but not familiar with his writing. Although apparently he's written some high fantasy series before, uh, one of them called Sarah and the Royal Stars over at Vault, and then um, a science fiction story, which I remember hearing about this one, Run Love Kill at Image. Although I've never read it, um, 
so I, I'm not sure how he and Steve got hooked up to do this story, but uh, it's fantastic. Like I, I'm, I, I really was digging this first issue and obviously um, you know, Jay, it was, it was his book of the week. He loved it as well. You know, he's got that uh, connection being in the army as well and serving in Afghanistan. So probably spoke to him a, a little bit. Uh, I'm also not familiar with this artist, Rubin, R-U-B-I-N-E. Um, but again, really impressed. It was really great action. Um, some good detail. Uh, I thought the color work was done by DC Alonzo really, really well. So uh, again, just a perfect first issue. Thought it was well paced. Thought it gave a good chunk of the story. Really uh, compelling and draws you in right away. So I, I was really impressed with this with this first issue as well. To the point where I'm, you know, I'm in. After only one issue, I'm I'm completely in. Uh, I thought Aaron was um, a very likable uh, antagonist. There's there's a little few things here there I could nitpick about the story in terms of. Aaron being able to, you know, take on multiple armed people himself. He just seemed to be a regular soldier. Uh, but I don't know, maybe he was special forces and then just not didn't mention it uh, in the story. So anyway, regardless of that, like I said, I'm nitpicking. Uh, I thought the first issue was, was really, really good. So, uh, so highly recommend that. Uh, all right. Let me give a rundown on some of the other books you might want to be on the lookout for today. Uh, Aftershock, that's the, actually their only book that's out this week, but we do recommend it. Search for Hugh number one uh, over at AWA, Not All Robots number two, which is from Mark Russell. And it's a, it's a fascinating concept. And Mark Russell is sort of the, the perfect guy to, to tell the story. Basically, in the future, all sort of labor or whatever is all handled by robots. Every family has a robot assigned to them that takes care of all their needs. Mankind, in a way, has become so dependent on these, you know, millions of robots that exist in the world. What could possibly go wrong, right? Can't wait to uh, to see how uh, Mark Russell is going to flip that on its head. Uh, over at DC, and again, remember you can go back and uh, listen to our DC Spotlight. Remember there are spoilers, but we talked about these books yesterday: Batman number one twelve, which is uh, Fear State crossover. Batman Catwoman number seven of 12. Liam Sharp jumps on the art duties. Really, really great art in that one. Black Manta number one of six from Chuck Brown. Booster Gold number two of eight. That's by Dan Jurgens with art by Ryan Sook. Crushing Lobo number four of eight was probably my favorite issue of that series so far. Green Lantern number six. We also had a Green Lantern 2021 annual number one written by Ryan Caddy, Sammy Basri, and Tom Dernick on art starring Jessica Cruz as she becomes a yellow lantern. Probably not for good, but for now. And that was a really great issue. Uh, Infinite Frontier number six of six from Joshua Williamson, art by Zermanico that brings that sort of first chapter of the big overarching story that uh, Joshua Williamson is telling comes to a close. Uh, Joker Harley Criminal Sanity has its hardcover come out from Cami Garcia with art by Jason Badower and Miko Suyan. In my mind, that's the best Harley Quinn story that's ever been told. Absolutely amazing. Huge fan of that series. So certainly recommend that. Uh, nice House on the Lake, number four of 12 with art by Alvaro Martinez Bueno, story by uh, James Tynan. Fascinating ideas. That is my book of the week without question. Uh, it raises so many questions and ideas to think about as you sort of can't help but put yourself in the shoes of the people who are on this nice house on the lake where 
any material thing they ask for, for the most part, they can have, but they can't ever leave that nice house on the lake because the rest of the world is, is burning. The rest of the world, the world has come to an end. It's the apocalypse. And is it, is, are you in heaven when you're in this place where you can't die and you have anything you want, but you don't have your freedom or the people that you love just, you know, a few close friends, maybe one or two people you're close with and the rest are almost strangers to you. Yeah. A lot of things to, uh, to unpack there. And it's, it's fascinating. Really, really a huge fan of that, uh, that story so far. Uh, there's also a bunch of Suicide Squad books out this week. So we have the regular series Suicide Squad number seven from uh, writer Robbie Thompson and Eduardo Pensico on pencils. We have a Suicide Squad 2021 annual number one, which explains why the heck Superboy would have thrown in with Amanda Waller. Also written by Robbie Thompson with Eduardo Pensica on art. And then we have the Suicide Squad Get Joker Black Label book number two of three from Brian Azzarello with art by Alex Maleev. Uh, Swamp Thing number seven of 10 from Ram V with art by Mark Perkins wraps up uh, the DC books that we talked about yesterday. So uh, a few, few DC books out, um, more than there are Marvel books this week. And again, you can listen to our DC Spotlight if you want more uh, in-depth details on that. From IDW, we have Canto number three, a Lionhearted number three of six, continuing the story of Canto and that All Ages book. Over at Image, in addition to the books we talked about, Deadly Class is up to issue number 48. Helm Greycastle, number four of four, which is a, a mashup of sort of fantasy and uh, Latin American lore from Henry Barajas, finishes up. Uh, Moonshine, number 27, from the 100 Bullets team of Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Riso. And then uh, last book I'll mention from uh, Image, which I know nothing about, uh, Six Sidekicks of Trigger Keaton, number four, uh, is out from Image as well. Over at Marvel, in addition to the books that we talked about, we have Conan the Barbarian, number 25. We have Champions, number nine. Uh, Extreme Carnage Toxin, number one, one shot. Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land, gets started with number one of a five-issue limited. Uh, Shang-Chi, number four, for those Shang-Chi fans that went and checked out the movie and want to get into the comic. Uh, Star Wars, Dr. Afra number 14. And then Star Wars, War of the Bounty Hunters, number four of five. So uh, again, not a huge week for, uh, for Marvel. Uh, and then finally... I'll mention over at Titan, we have Elric, the Dreaming City, number two. And there's a Marvel Studios WandaVision official collector's special soft cover that's out from uh, Titan Comics as well, which I found interesting. And the reason I mention it is uh, like, I know they license stuff, Marvel licenses stuff over to IDW, but now they're licensing stuff over to Titan Comics as well. So kind of interesting. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it for uh, the other books that you might want to be on the lookout for today. Uh, as always, I want to thank everybody for listening and for uh, supporting the podcast. We couldn't do it without you. So with that being said, hope you get out to your local comic shop this week and pick up some books. It's a, it's a lighter week and I'm glad because my, my uh, wallet could definitely use the break. So uh, once again, everybody, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially 
five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.